Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next. Hi there. You hear me? Hey. I sent out an email because I know a couple of people were wondering if we were on again. Yeah, yeah. I got a few emails last week, people trying to get in and saying they couldn't. I said, because we didn't do one. So I don't know if you're going to have anyone. It could be a one-on-one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all good. It works for the podcast anyways. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think what I might do is um what i might do is make a whatsapp and okay well and that way like if we cancel or if we postpone or that's a good idea that's a really good idea people like the new episodes and kind of keep people on board because i find email like i've known half the time people don't get it or they don't open it or right right by the way after we're done if you have a minute i want to introduce you to bina she's here she's cool. here in geneva so awesome. say hello Sounds good. Okay, so let's wait about two minutes and we'll let people log in. Okay. What's the weather like there? Is it more like North? Hot, 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 hot. Really? It's about 86, 87 degrees here today. (laughs) But you're, it's not humid though. It cools down. It's sort of like Jerusalem weather, very similar. You're about 360, 70 meters up. So whatever, it's not so humid. Right. Uh, when I got here, it was cool. It was like in the fifties and sixties, and I've only, you know, I've been here already two weeks, so it's, uh, it, it's really warmed up a lot. But it's nice. You got the whole place is shut down because Putin and Biden are literally. I can twenty minutes. I can walk over to where they are now. <laughs> saying that's so wild. Yeah. And what's the COVID situation there? uh it's pretty much everything's open you have to wear masks like in uh, inside and you got to wear masks on like trains and stuff like that but otherwise uh it's open wow amazing amazing we're coming out of i think the longest lockdown in north america not like the world at this it's unbelievable robert where are you in brussels uh i am in uh geneva All right, so maybe what we'll do is we'll get started. And if other people are joining, they'll kind of come in as we're talking. But we'll really use this as a way to kind of record the, the podcast. And I'll get those two episodes out like today and tomorrow. Um, and then we'll keep going. Okay. Um, do you know if Aish has ever like let people know that we were doing this podcast? I never mentioned it to them. I could okay. mention it to Nehemia Cooper Smith. You know, are you are you you know him, Nehemia? I don't. How is oh, okay. he related to Dina? That's his wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Dina, I know. <laughs> I've never met Nehemia. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he's the head of H.com. So uh, 
he uh, I don't know but I don't know how it works with them whether they'll, they'll put it up or not maybe they would right. It'd be nice I, to I put mean, it out I'm, there. I'm just curious I'm more just always wondering like how do people work together and what are people interested in and um, right, right, right. how do we use like you know networks to kind of send stuff out but I also know like we're just notoriously bad at partnering with each, with each other yeah yeah exactly so I also understand how that works um so okay cool i just didn't know if they were on the radar all right so welcome back everyone to yeah uh, really remember what's next this is the an on the road edition um so no digging in geneva i guess rabbi Scott. no 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 except digging <laughs> politics like i said we got we got the biden and putin here at the same time so interesting so perfect timing yeah, that's a very interesting situation. It'll be kind of cool to see how that plays out. Um, okay, so we thought we would return a little bit to um, something we were sort of working on, which was looking at different parts of the Jewish population now and trying to understand what their history is and who they are. Um, certainly in the diaspora, we don't really have a an understanding of Mizrahi Jews and Mizrahi Jewry. It, it's a very almost little known word, certainly almost not known at all concept. Um, and often, um, you know, as we spoke about earlier, it's often confused with Sephardic Jewry as if those two things are the same thing. So I would love to get a sense of what is Mizrahi Jew, where does that term come from? And, and where, how did we end up here? Who are these people? <laughs> right, right. No, it's actually a great question and a really interesting topic. Um, interesting the terms, we did a class, we did a podcast previously on, we talked about Sephardim, meaning, you know, the word Spain and talking about the Jews of Spain, which was the center of the Jewish world from the eighth to the 11th century, for sure, the golden age of Spain, but all the way up until 1492, um, you had hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Spain. We remember, we have to keep in mind the Jewish demographics have changed dramatically. Uh, you know, we don't have exact statistics. Like today, we're much more accurate with that. But I've, been, I've done a lot of research on Jewish demography. And at this period of time, you know, about a thousand years ago, there was something about like a million Jews in the world. That's it. Um, the population had dropped dramatically from the Roman, the Roman Empire, first century of the common era before all of the revolts you know, 66 to 70, the Great Revolt, the Ketos' War, the biggest of all revolts in the Roman Empire, Bar Kokhba, where I think I mentioned previously, I think that like two out of every three Jews died. And the population of the Jews at the, you know, 2000 years ago was, we don't know again, but I, I would say between uh, four to, it could be between four to 8 million Jews, five to 8 million Jews wow. in the Roman Empire primarily, and also in Persia, so you had a large Jewish population, which, because of being killed out and scattered and, and, and being dislocated from Israel, shrinks dramatically. And the population of a lot of places shrunk, by the way. I would say Rome 2,000 years ago had, was probably the largest city on the planet Earth with maybe a million and a half people living in it. And Rome 1,000 years ago had maybe 40,000 people living in it. Because, you know, when the central authority collapsed, people just fled the cities and went back to more you know, rural living and, um, so we talk about hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Spain. That's a very significant percentage. You know, it could be a quarter of all the Jews in the world are living there. And that's where that term like Sephardi came from. We talked about how, you know, with the expulsion, these Jews wandered around the Mediterranean. That was the known world. You know, people didn't really know America was just being discovered precisely in the year that the Jews were being expelled. Christopher Columbus, 1492, the uh, um, and they and they moved to the Ottoman Empire in North Africa, but there are already Jews there. So we have this terminology like Sephardi, which is generally kind of generically used to describe, you know, the, the best. I think I mentioned previously the, the the best definition of the term Sephardi is anyone who's not Ashkenazi, but, which is not really a definition. Um, but the easiest way to define Sephardic Jewry, it's like using the word Torah can refer to the entire corpus of all Jewish religious knowledge or, you know, the oral and written law or just the five books of Moses, you know, but the, the, the broadest term to use is, is Jews living in the Muslim world, mm. which is not necessarily the Middle East because Spain from the eighth century to 1492 was predominantly controlled by the Muslims who crossed, you know, from Morocco, North Africa into Spain in 711. 
Um, so that was like kind of the, the general term. Interesting point of trivia that most Jews in the world, up until like the founding of the state of Israel, those Jews called themselves kind of Sephardim, even the ones who never lived in Spain. The term is Rahi really caught on much more, which is really meaning Eastern. You know, thinking of Jews, you think of Europe and you go to the East. And ironically, like I mentioned previously, you know, the largest Jewish community in the Arab world was all the way in the West, mm -hmm. since Spain is the westernmost part and Portugal the westernmost part of Europe. But generally, um, we're talking about uh, the term Mizrahi, meaning Eastern was, has now come to refer to Jews who are not necessarily have their origins in Spain, but have their origins in anywhere from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. to North Africa, to not really so much the Far East, but places further to the east of where Israel is today, you know, like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, all these interesting places where Jews got out to. So, I actually uh, recently saw a discussion that was saying Jews are actually part of the Asian world, that we should be identified as, um, as Asian. Asian. And, and how does that work with the map? Because I always think of that flower type of, type of shaped map that has kind of Europe, Asia, Africa, and us sort of centered right in the middle of that. But technically, geographically, are we Asian? It's not, I get, again, depends how you use the term Asian. I mean, the Middle East is not really Asia. It's sort of like a giant land bridge between Africa and uh, and uh, what we call Asia. So depending on how you define Asians continentally, I don't believe that today with the Middle East is referred to as part of Asia. So I think we're kind of in our own group. Like we use the term Semitic as Middle Eastern people and anthropology today. Um, so that's generally kind of the term used. So I don't know we'd refer to ourselves, but a good percentage of the Jews uh, beginning with two and a half thousand years ago, which is the first member. Originally, we all lived in one little piece of real estate, the land of Israel, and then two and a half thousand, well, actually 2,700 years ago, you know, Israel split into two kingdoms after the death of King Solomon, Israel in the north, the 10 tribes in Judah with Jerusalem as its capital in the south, and both became vassal states of first the Assyrian empire and later uh, Babylonian and Persian empires. About 2,700 years ago, that northern kingdom is 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 destroyed uh, by Sanherib, and, and they're exiled. To it's one of the great mysteries of Jewish history, the ten lost tribes. But that is arguably the beginning of the Jewish diaspora, right. and it describes in the Book of Kings, Halor and Habor and the Gozen River, and these are places that are to the east of what is Iran today, basically. Um, and that many of these places like Afghanistan, there's even a theory that the Pashtun who make up the majority of the Afghani people uh, who are fanatic, these are the Taliban basically, that their origins are, uh, that they're, they're largely comprised of these lost tribe Jews, which would be pretty funny. You know, <laughs> that you have the Taliban being, there's 25 million of these people, Pashtun. I was jokingly say we should like open up like Aisha Torah and Chabad there and convert them all back and we'll bring them to Israel. We'll have like, you know, 2 million of our own Mujahideen of our own, you know, we'll let them take care of our enemies. The IDF just handling it all. Yeah, yeah. But so you do have a good percentage of the Jewish population, those 10 lost tribes is displaced to the east what would be the Western part of Asia, hmm. you know? And, 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 and some of those communities date themselves back to that period of time. A lot of them are lost, of course, as the vast majority of Jews, you know, you can think about demographics. If there was six to 8 million Jews in the Roman empire 2000 years ago, and we all, you know, married young and had as many kids as humanly possible, demographers estimate there should be between 750 million Jews and the lowest number is 250 million Jews. The median number is about 400 million Jews. Wow. There's only 14, 14 and a half million Jews. So for everyone, do the math, divide 400 million by 14 and a half million. You know, it means for everyone who is Jewish, there's a lot of non-Jewish blood. There's a lot of Jewish blood out there in non-Jews, people running around. So you probably have huge populations of people that do have Jewish genetic material, but no longer identifiable as such. But that, that's really the Mizrahi we're talking about. Um, and it's different because they're two different groups of people. Again, the term really wasn't so used until the state of Israel. They called them the Ashkenazi power elite that created the state of Israel. Remember, Zionism was overwhelmingly, completely, uh, talking about political Zionism, 
Jews coming back to Israel has been going on a long time and the Sephardic Middle Eastern Jewish population was actually coming back before the Ashkenazi population. They lived a lot closer, it was a lot easier to do. Not that it was easy then, but it was easier than coming from Europe. Um, but when political Zionism kicks in in 1882, it's a completely Eastern European Ashkenazi uh, affair. That's another interesting term because, you know, you talk about West and East and we think of Jews living in the Eastern side of Europe being those who lived in the Christian world, which is the broadest definition of Ashkenazi. Ironically, um, they used to be called Ausjuden, Eastern Jews. And the Jews of North Africa and Spain, they used to call them Mugrab. Mugrab is an Arabic word for the Westerners. So the irony is if you put where Israel is and you look at how many Jews are living in what's today Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, Spain, a good chunk of the Jewish world is actually living in the Arabic world, but to the west of Israel. So everyone gets confused. So it used to be that the East, the East Jews were the Ashkenazi Jews, the West Jews were the North African Jews. But today we kind of use Mizrahi as a term that defines uh, Jews who are uh, from the Middle East and from Western Asia and North Africa including what is Turkey what is, all the way to Morocco. What is the term Mizrahi? Like, what does that mean? How, why well, it's like, it actually goes, actually refers to East. You know, Mizrah is the direction. You know, Mizrah Ma'arav, Mugrab Ma'arav, Western Arabic Hebrew related languages. So in that sense, it actually makes kind of sense geographically if you're looking at the Jewish population to the East of Israel being, you know, the Islamic, not necessarily Arab at all, like Turkey is not, Persia is not, all these Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, you know, these countries are not, uh, they're not Arab, but they have, they can't, became Islamic. Right, so, right, uh, right. And um, were there always Mizrahi Jews in Israel or were these Jews that also came back in the 1800s when there was political Zionism? Again, like there's always a Jewish community in Israel, which are the authentic original Jews. Sadly, we don't have any. Uh, there was a, a family in Piki'in in the Galilee, which is today a lot of these, you know, the Galilee is overwhelmingly Arab, and but that's the center of the Jewish world in you know the late Roman Empire. Um, there was a family in Piki'in. I don't believe any of them are alive anymore today. They claim they never left the land of Israel. Wow. It would be fascinating to meet people like that to see genetically, I don't know if they did any genetic testing of them to see how they compare to other Jews around the world, but um, there's always a Jewish population in Israel. But if you ask Jews, I've never met a Jew, and I've met a lot of Jews in Israel, never met any of them who said, I've, we've never left. I have both Ashkenazi and especially Sephardic Jews saying there's seven, eight generations in Jerusalem. So yeah, there was always that population. Again, the majority, the Ottoman period, the majority of Jews living in Israel were Jews who had come back to the land of Israel from the surrounding communities in the Middle East. Remember, Israel wasn't necessarily the best place to live economically or politically. It was kind of run down in the late Ottoman period. So Jews who wanted to live in places like Jerusalem were basically very religious Jews who wanted to be in the Holy Land. But economic opportunities you know, weren't, weren't so great for them. There's no Ashkenazi real community in the land of Israel. Uh, when we say meaning Jews who left and came back until really the Vilna Gon sent uh, Rabbi Elijah of Vilna in the late 18th, early 19th century, um, probably out of a desire to jumpstart the redemption process. It's a very interesting sub story. Hmm. Sent 500 of his students from Vilna back to the land of Israel. And they settled in places like uh, Sfat, uh, Jerusalem, and that's the rebirth of an Ashkenazi community. But really, before Zionism kicks in and you have waves of Aliyah that begin in 1882, the overwhelming population of the land of Israel are Middle Eastern Jews whose primary language is Arabic. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that was their culture and grew up amongst the Arab world. And so where, so in that influx, so for instance, so is, do they identify themselves as Mizrahi Jews or is that a diaspora name that was given to that population? Right. So from what I've, when I've been in research, they basically, they call themselves kind of Sephardi. Um, and again, the distinction was more made by the political elite of Israel to define the two big groups. Uh, 
it's interesting demographically speaking of demographics you know the earliest diaspora communities first we have the exile 2700 years ago 10 lost tribes about 2500 years ago the babylonians destroy the northern the southern kingdom and destroy jerusalem we get exiled for 70 years to babylon which is today iraq uh, and that is the oldest continuous identifiable diaspora community i mean we know where it begins and jews were up into iraq until the 1960s um, so with the initial, you know, destruction of the northern and southern kingdoms, the Jewish diaspora is circling Israel, like the Bible described, many Jews fled after the assassination of, of Gedalia ben Achikam, which is commemorated by the, the fast of Gedalia, Tzom Gedalia, which was the last vestige of Jewish autonomy in Israel after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, Jews freaking out that the, the Babylonian appointed Jewish leader of, of, of the Jewish, the remaining Jewish community that wasn't carried into exile, was murdered out of fear, they, they fled to Egypt. Huh. So, so you have, so pretty much there are no Jews living, you know, across the Mediterranean. They're living in the immediate area around, you know, to the east, to the, you know, the western side of Asia, what we call Iraq and, and Iran today, you know, all along that area. As, you know, the we go into the second temple period and we have the Greeks coming, the Mediterranean world expands, you know, with the Greeks first building an empire, then the Romans making it a, a Roman little, you know, internal sea is the whole Mediterranean. So Jews will expand out and you'll have the first Jews living in Europe going in the Roman empire. We've seen this, there's, there's evidence of Jews living in Europe during the Roman empire. We know I've met, there's a woman tour guide in Rome. Her name is Michaela Pavancello. Really nice lady. If you ever go to Rome, right? anyone listening, go to Rome. She's a fantastic tour guide. She's, I think she said, if I got it correctly, that um, her mother is, I think, Tunisian, but on her father's side, they've been in Rome for over 2,000 years. Wow. Since before the destruction of the Second Temple. But these are really small communities. You know, 1,000 years ago, plus Ellie, the overwhelming majority of Jews in the world are the Sephardic Jews. Let's say out of a million Jews living in the world a thousand years ago, there's maybe 20 to 30,000 Jews living outside the Islamic world. First in places like uh, Italy, the Roman Empire, uh, and, and in Southern France, on the Southern Mediterranean. And, and then they migrate North, like the, during the Carolingian emperors, like who is Charles Martel, Pepin, Charlemagne, you know, those famous, when they established this Frankish kingdom in what is today, you know, German, Central and Northern Europe. Right. So then you have Jews. Jews always expanded where there's economic opportunities, where we could move to. And since we're now become, gone from being in Israel to now being, you know, living outside our homeland, is they would, we would, we became the wandering Jews for economic opportunities. And uh, because, precisely because we were then scattered around the world, but we're united by common you know, national religious connection, common ability to communicate, even if he was not the spoken language, Jews could communicate in it. It, it set us up perfectly to be the middlemen of everything at this period of time, whether it's Jews in Europe, you know, connected to Jews in the Middle East, when Europe's gonna split, you know, at this period of time between the, the, you know, the Christian world and the Arab world that are often fighting each other, Jews will be the bridge in every respect. They play a, re it's a really fascinating story about how Ashkenazim or Sephardim Jews will be so involved in trade, in knowledge, in reintroducing a lot of the classical knowledge of the Greek and Roman world that was lost to medieval Europe back into Europe and being one of the great, uh, really regenerative forces for the Renaissance yeah. or a small number of Jews acting in a very powerful way. It's a really, really interesting story. But, but going back a uh, thousand years ago, plus 95% of the Jews in the world are, we call them uh, Sephardi slash Mizrahi, not living in European Jews. Uh, as I think I mentioned in our previous podcast, like you fast forward till pre-Holocaust when there's maybe a million of those Jews in the world and, and 16 million Ashkenazim. Uh, so you see how dramatically it changed. It's like 90% of the Jewish world pre-Holocaust is going to end up being Ashkenazi. You have a huge switch. It has to do with the expulsion of Spain and Jews migrating to greener pastures in Eastern Europe. And a lot of those Jews we now know are uh, a lot of these Sephardic Jews moved into Europe after 1492. It's funny, the name Ashkenazi, which is associated with Jews like myself who are from Eastern Europe and the Christian world, anyone with the name Ashkenazi is Sephardi. Anyone with the name is Rashi. Can you clarify that statement? What do you mean? 
Because there's anyone you think of, like you think of the, the defense minister of Israel, Ashkenazi, he's a Sephardi guy. Sephardi took last names before Ashkenazi took last names. Ashkenazi only took last names, eh, you know, Aust Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germany, late 18th, early 19th centuries, so that they could be tracked for censuses and taxing and things like that. They made them take names. Uh, Sephardi took them earlier. And you see names like, and they often come from the places that they lived in, like the name Toledano, which is a very common Moroccan name. It's actually from the city of Toledo in Spain. Hmm. Um, and things like, you know, Cohen and Levy universally held by Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, but you'll just find there's certain, a lot of the names come from the places they came from, but they tended to have those names earlier. When these Jews from Spain moved to Germany, they took the name Ashkenazi, meaning they now lives in Germany, but they're really Sephardim. So it's ironic. Anyone <laughs> named Mizrahi right. is, is, is Mizrahi. There's no Ashkenazi name as Rocky that I've ever met. And there's no Ashkenazi with the last name Ashkenazi that I've ever met. I got to check out the, the violinist Vladimir Ashkenazi to find out maybe he's the one exception. He's the only guy. That's but the demographics changed dramatically. And with the founding of the state of Israel, they started to make this distinction between real Sephardim, you know, came from Spain, and, and, and the people who never left the Middle East, North Africa, and Western Asia. Right. But of course, to make it that much more complicated, when, when 150 to 200,000 Jews flee Spain in 1492, they all go back to, they don't, some will go to, to Europe, but Europe isn't such a welcoming place in 1492. Jews are being expelled from everywhere. Right. They'll go back to North Africa. They'll go back to the land of Israel, Sfat you know, become the largest Jewish community in Israel with 10,000 Jews. And they'll move back to Beirut and Egypt and Syria and Iran and Italy and the Balkans. This is all the Ottoman Turkish empire. So they will then bring their own traditions and customs. And they are viewed as like sort of better cultured people. They come from the most enlightened, you know, the, the Arab Islamic world of a thousand years ago plus was more enlightened than medieval Europe. And Spain, especially during that golden age, was probably the most, it was like Germany in the 19th century, the most cultured place. Wow. Because the Omayyad dynasty there was so open and tolerant in contradiction to Islamic law, it was so open and tolerant to Jews and Christians that it really led to a great symbi symbiosis that allowed for a lot of creativity. So when these Sephardic Jews will flee Spain, they generally, it's coming, they're just like the Ashkenazim, when the Sephardim come into Israel, the mid 20, you know, when Israel's founded, they're better educated. They're doctors and lawyers, and, they're, and they look down on the, the Jews coming from the Middle East who are generally less poorly educated, less cultured, coming from a world that was poorly educated and less cultured, which is where, unfortunately, the Arab Islamic world has been for the last thousand years. So when these Sephardic Jews, the real Sephardic Jews from Spain, are going to end up coming back to North Africa, the Middle East, you know, they will re-emerge with the indigenous Mizrahi community that never left. And the, the, a lot of the customs and culture will merge, and in many places they'll even overwhelm the communities. Like in Italy, mm. there's a there's a there's a community there that had customs that was completely overwhelmed by Jews coming from Spain. Um, so, and I think because their culture was viewed as higher culture, it'll often be adopted by the local people, as this is like a move up in the world. So now it's all big mishmash. <laughs> so you have a lot of you have I've met lots of Jews uh, from the middle from you know who whose families came a generation ago from like Lebanon, Syria, like that, but traced their ancestry back to Spain also. Hmm. And in the Arab world, um, okay, I, I, I mean, one of the questions I have is, if you were a Mizrahi Jew, if you were coming from Persia, if you were coming from North Africa, um, were you viewed as other, like in other populations, were you viewed as Arab or were you viewed as Jew? And how do people know? You mean, did, uh, did Ashkenazi Jews view these Jews as Arabs? No, not at all. No, they, they spoke Arabic. It's the same thing as a German-speaking Jew is not viewed as a German, although a lot of German Jews would love to be viewed as Germans, especially right. in the early reform movement. And we're Germans first. Right. Judaism is just a religious thing. Um, no, they were definitely viewed as they were definitely viewed as Jews, but but there was a lot of, it's one of those interesting side, side and sad stories of the early years of the state of Israel, how they were really marginalized. And unlike, you know, the larger demographic picture of Jews pre-Holocaust, where the Ashkenazi, the overwhelming majority of the population, uh, you know, when, 
when between 1948 and 1967, which is the birth of Israel to the Six Day War, uh, those Jews are ethnically cleansed from the Middle East. It's one of those stories that gets no attention. Mm. You know, about 850, we talk about the Palestinian refugees, you know, the, uh, there were less of them than there were Jews thrown out of the Middle East, but about 850,000 Mizrahi Jews living throughout North Africa, the Middle East, countries surrounding Israel and further out, are. are either flee or airlifted out, you know, like Operation Magic Carpet, 1948 to 1950, they take out the Yemenite Jewish community or are expelled, usually losing all of their communal business and private property. I always say it's a great lawsuit that a couple of Sephardic Israeli Jews have tried to pursue, you know, is going after, you know, how much, as much as you, know, you talk about the Palestinian refugee issue, how it was caused, the combination of getting out of the way of the fighting, being told by the Arabs, armies invading to stand aside so we can slaughter the Jews, and some definitely being thrown out of their communities by Jews during the fighting. Um, but a, it was a, a, a far bigger and greater injustice, in my opinion, was caused by the expulsions of 850,000 Jews. But unlike Ashkenazim, um, who have moved around and tended to stay in Europe and not, didn't necessarily want to come to the land of Israel. Right. You think of it, between 1882 and 1914, half the population of Tsarist Russia is going to flee. That's like out of wow. 5.5 million Jews, 2.5 2 or something million Jews are going to leave, but 90% of them are going to go to America. Right. Um, they don't want to go to Israel, this, but this corresponds exactly to Zionism. Only the real idealistic Ashkenazim came, but meanwhile, the Sephardic Jews, uh, at least half of them, if not more, are going to come to Israel. So the demographics of Israel, they're not going to reflect the reality of the demographics of the Jewish world, which until the, and even post-Holocaust is overwhelmingly Ashkenazi in Israel, they're going to end up making up half the population of the country. But when they come in from the surrounding Arab states, which are basically third world, and they end up meeting people like, you know, the Zionist leadership, which is mostly Eastern European, but well-educated chemists like Chaim Weitzman, university graduates, lawyers, Ben-Gurion, people like that. They're gonna, there's going to be a lot of negativity and looking down on them hmm. um, and really treating them as second-class citizens. They're going to be politically trying to try and find a Sephardi prime minister of Israel. There was one president, Yitzhak Navon, but they really have been shunted aside and treated poorly uh, and viewed, of course, as Jews, but as sort of like working class, blue collar people. We're the real people who know better. Very condescending attitude of the Mapai party, which was Ben-Gurion's pre-labor party. And of course, unlike these guys, they all came in traditional religious. Uh, Mizrahi world, remember the Arab world has never been secular. Even Arabs today who call themselves secular are not really secular by Western standards. Um, and uh, whereas Eastern European Jewish Judaism, a lot of these Jews left their Judaism behind and the Zionist movement, I don't, I don't know if we had that conversation yet, but the Zionist movement was overwhelmingly with very few exceptions founded by Jews who left their Judaism behind and were often at best ambivalent and quite hostile to Judaism. So a combination of them viewing the state of Israel as a place we're gonna create a new modern secular fighting farming Hebrew and then being overwhelmed with these much more traditional, poor, poorly educated, working class Sephardim who generally, although not always dark skinned, you know, there was definitely a level of racism in there for sure. Jewish racism, not by the way, not that different from you see in America when the German Jews show up in the mid 19th century, about 280,000 of them will flee Germany. And then fast forward, you know, 40 years later, when all these Eastern European Jews start coming in, there's a lot of negativity and condescension of these well-educated, much more assimilated German Jews towards their much poorer, much more traditional Yiddish-speaking, you know, Jewish cousins who they viewed as Jews, but just like, eh, right. let's send them down south, let's get them out of New York, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Very condescending attitude and deliberate attempts in both cases to kind of secularize and acculturate these people. Like let's wean them off of their like foreign whatever stuff and make them in the case of Israel, you know, secular Zionisty kind of thing. And then it did a lot of damage, by the way. It's an interesting topic. It's fascinating. It destroyed. It's, yeah, it's like this kind of, you know, I, I'll acknowledge it's a stereotype, but a certain stereotypical arrogant European stance of secularism and culturism that that's somehow better than what everybody else is doing, and certainly influenced a certain 
academic culture that came out of that movement where they would go to, like you said, they would go to the Middle East or they would go to America and basically look at everybody who had any connection to their own, their land, their religion, their peoplehood as like less advanced or less sophisticated in some way. We see that come up in the Gentleman's Agreement film. That's uh, that great old film where it's like, right, right. well, you know, please don't come in here looking too Jewish and speaking too Jewish because we're trying to like reestablish ourselves as, you know, cultured and sophisticated and academic. And I think that's such an interesting imposition. Right. And it was, it's sort of like, you're right, it's 100%. It was a combination. In the case of America, certainly the German Jews, we don't want these religious looking because they're going to remind all the Gentiles that we're Jewish too. In the case of Israel, that wasn't obviously the issue because we're all Jews. It's a Jewish state, but we don't want, we just don't want your kind of primitive, I mean, a lot of secular Zionism looked down on, you know, Judaism and much of the rituals unnecessary for right. a modern and modern state. But again, it was also a racial thing is clear, you know, that it's, it's, it's a stereotype that all Sephardic Jews look like the Arabs. And I know I have a lot of Jewish friends who are Syrians, some of them have blue eyes and red hair and blonde hair, even some of them. Um, so it's a bit of a stereotype, but it definitely it, right. it, or even it in Africa. I saw something recently that was saying like Africa is one of the most ethnically diverse continents in terms of the types of people the colors of skin the colors of eyes the like to say that um that all africans are black is just totally not in in reality um, right right so yeah it's much more nuanced than that and obviously so interesting within the world there's you know they may group them we they may call themselves sephardim or mizrahi but even within that world i mean i have again many many friends and it's interesting how like my a lot some of my syrian friends aren't really fond of Moroccans. They're like the North African Jews. They're like really like kind of like working class. They look more like Arabs. We come from, you know, they come as friends who come from places like Beirut and stuff like that. And they were French speaking, you know, Beirut was a French colony, Lebanon, you know, and even, even amongst themselves, they have Halabi and they have Syrian. They have Halab is a different term. We think of them as the same, but they, it's interesting how even you go to like Persia, the Iranian Jewish community, which is the Persian Jewish community. And there I've, I've learned this over years of interacting and my knowledge of history. They look at very much what city they're from. Um, Esfahani, Shirazi, Tehrani Jews, for instance, because Tehran was the center of Jewish culture during the, you know, they kind of were like the wealthiest, best educated. They kind of look down on, you know, oh, those, those Jews in Masha, they're all like religious fanatics and they're really like unsophisticated. <laughs> so it's a Jewish thing to do. But as I say, big adult, the big picture of how it affected Israel right. in the founding of the state was, you know, real condescension towards Fardim, open prejudice towards them, putting them in, uh, you know, the working class positions uh, even putting them in, you know, in the, on the, on the, you know, Jerusalem, which is a divided city, we'll settle them like Musrara, which is a neighborhood right outside the old city walls. It's right where city hall is. If you're facing city hall with the old city and back of you to the right is a neighborhood in back of Notre Dame called uh, Musrara, uh, which used to be a wealthy Arab neighborhood mm -hmm. during the war, after the war of independence, it, it, uh, it, it ended up on the Israeli side of things. And what, who do they settle in Musrara? They settled in these poor Jews from North Africa. That's right, like across the street, fifty yards away, the Jordanian snipers. So let's put the Sephardim in there. You know, not that they wanted to get shot, God forbid, but these are dangerous local. These are not the choice neighbors in Jerusalem to live in. Right. And they set up this, and you can still today see where the border was by this housing that was all along the seam line that was overwhelmingly occupied by North African Jews. Um, it's into my parents. They live in Musrara in a really fancy building. Uh, but it's also in Musrara that in 1971, an organization called the Black Panthers began, which probably took their name from the Black Panthers in America. You know, Stokely Carmichael started in the 60s. Wait, so there was a Black Panthers in Israel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They found they were founded in 1971 in Musrara. There's even some speculation, by the way, the Black Panthers in America, Eldridge Cleaver, those guys were educated by these Mizrahi Jews who went there to, to get them organized figures, these Jewish revolutionaries. There's some Wait, the, the, Mizrahi Jews went to America? Or? I was reading up on them that, that some of these guys actually interacted with them because they empathize with them. You're like the you're like the dark-skinned persecuted people of America, and we're like the dark-skinned persecuted people in our country. There's some there's some thinking, it's again on topic I don't want to get into now, but there's some thinking that they even helped, whereas the Black Panther name was taken 
from the American Black Panthers who are actually African-Americans. There's some thinking that actually the original concept and the ideology of the Black Panthers in America was partially like, partially like, like Lafayette was involved with Jefferson and the American, you know, wow. American Revolution, that kind of stuff. Um, but this was a this was a protest movement founded by Mizrahi Jews who, by the early 1970s, were fed up with being treated as second class citizens and, and being abused. Um, and it led to protests and riots. And they met with Golda Meir. She called them not nice people. It's funny. There's a street today called "They're Not Nice People," and <laughs> it's named after the quote that Golda Meir called them. It's actually the name of the street. Um, and if you go to Musrah, the neighborhood, there's even a mural of the Black Panthers still there. Yeah. And uh, they, but it, this is the beginning of the awakening of this, you know, Mizrahi community recognizing that they represent not a minority. That's right. You know, maybe in, in terms of the Jewish world, they're a minority, but in Israel, they're half the population of the country and they're being dumped on and abused. That will eventually lead to the mainstreaming themselves like Charlie Bitone. He'll become like a communist, you know, like he'll be involved in Israeli, this Mizrahi guy in Israeli politics in the, in the Knesset. And eventually, um, they're the ones who are going to vote Menachem Begin into power. Huh. And Begin is, you know, the Herut party, which is the Likud party. These people, Likud is more right-wing politically uh, and more uh, traditional, not a religious party, but more traditional. And Begin, who is much more traditional, the guy like Ben-Gurion, who was in power a very long time. It's these Mizrahi Jews, and they finally flexed their political muscles in 1977, will finally knock Mapai, which then becomes the Labor Party, out of power and create right-wing governments. And until today, you can see how they've changed the flavor of Israel, uh, because unlike a lot of Ashkenazi Jews, you know, they came from the, the early power elite came from Kibbutzim, and these were the most secularized of all Jews, even anti-religious, the Shomer Atzeir Kibbutzim, that would have a pork chop barbecue on Yom Kippur and, had, and often had a picture of Stalin in their dining hall just to show how they were not into religion, not into socialism as their sort of religion. Um, this is where the Ashkenazi power elite, you know, initially came from the people who formed the country. Now you have uh, this Farty world and it's interesting, you still see this until today. You see this on Yom Kippur, for instance, when the whole country shuts down, you know, all these women in their tight little pantsuits all come to synagogue. Sephardim are much more traditional. They're, I always call them Haredi non-observant. Mm. They didn't go through the enlightenment. They're much more down here. They're very much more emotional and, 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 and feel things much more strongly. They're much more strongly connected uh, people because they didn't go through that whole experience of, you know, the enlightenment and being rational thinking and being weaned out of religion and, Right. And, and now they really have much more, till today, the differences still exist. Ashkenazim still are the power elite of as many more Sephardi mainstreaming and there's still more Ashkenazim going to university, just like you see whites in America going to university over blacks. It's not because of systemic racism. It's a cultural thing. You know, they tend to be more into business and blue collar. It's, it's residual. It's changing. And the biggest change is the intermarriage now. Right. You know, you wouldn't have kibbutzim people coming from Daganya, you know, and marrying Moroccans. No way. They just wouldn't have done it. Right. Now you have amongst secular Israelis, they, it's about a, th you have about 30% intermarriage rate now. I personally and told my kids. intermarriage between. Ashkenazim and Spartan. So that is disappearing and the gaps are narrowing. And now you have these mixed couples like my kids. I have four married kids now, and three of the four are, uh, my, my daughter married, yeah, guy was 100% right. Yemenite, really dark. I had a, a son who married a girl who's half Yemenite, half Egyptian. I told him to do it, mix up the gene pool. You know, right. <laughs> think, think how many, there's a couple thousand Ashkenazi, we're intermarrying for, you know, a thousand years. Look, right. at, look at the Ashkenazi genetic pool. It's very limited, very narrow. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there's about three dozen different genetic disorders that are associated just with Ashkenazi Jews because they're so inbred. So I said, that's, you know, you know I always jokingly say, you marry your first cousin for 400 years, you get Prince Charles. You know, so. <laughs> No offense, so, Charlie. But no offense yeah. to the royal family. That's so that's disappearing. Because then, yeah, I remember, um, I think I told this story before. I remember one of our, um, one of the guards that was with us on a trip to Israel once, he was from Ethiopia and it was his, his family was part of the, the generations that walked from, you know, through Ethiopia to try to get to Israel. Um, 
And I asked him, I said, what's one of the most challenging things you noticed for your culture now being in Israel? And he said, one of the things that we're really struggling with right now is in Ethiopia, you used to have to say back seven generations of your family in order to marry somebody. You each had to be able to do that, that you knew your house you know, your family, because you could say back all of the generations that came before you seven generations ago. And that was how you knew whether this house was a good match with this house. And he said, now the elders are really struggling because now we're in a land where everyone's Jewish, but nobody knows their houses <laughs> or no one can say back seven generations. Very few can. Um, certainly if you ask anyone in the diaspora today as a Jew to say back seven of their generations, I, I don't think I've met anyone yet who has been able to actually do that. So there is this idea like the cultures are coming together, but it's a lot of push pull and getting used to how do we bring these very different Northern and Southern cultures together? Right, right. Land? Well, it's interesting, you know, the, all the differences in the Jewish world you know, is an idea that you're supposed to support and you're supposed to keep up your uh, it's called minhag avotenu be'adenu. You're not supposed to break with your family's customs. Mm. You know, if you grew up in, in if you grew up in in uh, Europe, saying the suf and not the tough, when you say your Hebrew as Ashkenazi pronounce it, yet you get to Israel and the state of Israel adopted the you know the, the Sephardic pronunciation. You're supposed to still preserve that when you pray, like I do. But then, but then I explain to people much too much of the Jewish world worships these differences as if they're holy, like walking around in a black suit with a fur hat or a fedora on is somehow intrinsically historically culturally jewish it's it's not it's adopted from the european cultures just as the sephardim adopted a lot of things whether it's how they're how they sing the songs i remember when i first came to israel we had one night we had a sing-off with some sephardi guys from Prat yosef and yeshiva and these guys sounded like a bunch of guys from a mosque and we sounded like a bunch of guys in a german beer hall right you know and neither of them was a really a authentically Jewish, although you right. could argue that certain aspects of the Middle Eastern Jewish culture are probably more authentic because Israel is Middle Eastern. And it could be that the Yemenite pronunciation of Hebrew might be more historically correct than Ashkenazi. They certainly have a better ayin than we have and different sounds like a soft G, like they go, um, but when, when it's like the growing pains of creating a recon the, like Israel is the old, the, the newest old country in the world of bringing Jews who have been separated for 2000 years and developed into whether it's, you know, Sephardim and Mizrahi or the bigger differences, Mizrahi and, and Ashkenazi, bringing them back together. And then all the subgroups and trying to, I'm a big advocate of this. I don't speak on it a lot, but, you know, you see like the Mizrahi movement which has nothing to do with Mizrahi. Mizrahi was, it's, 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 uh, it's um, Merkaz Ruchani, that's what it, it's the abbreviation for, the middle spiritual thing. This were the, mm -hmm. a few European rabbis who tried to take modern political Zionism and put it together with Judaism, believing that correctly, in my opinion, that Judaism could only be properly expressed as a religious identity, but in the land of Israel, because so many of the commandments are related to the land of Israel. Right. Um, so it, you see that these are the people, you know, and the original Mizrahi leaders were like Rav Kook. He wore a strimal and he wore a kapata, the black, long black coat. But if you look at Mizrahi Jews today, the Dati Lumi community, which again is very varied from Hardal guys would pay us longer than any Hasidim to the barely religious modern orthodoxy kind of kids you have. It's a very diverse community. But I personally believe that this is the evolution of the re of recreation of a new form of Judaism, mm. which is certainly in terms of clothing better suited for the Middle East. You know, let's wear sandals yeah. and light cotton clothing and, and let's dump the jackets, shirt, white polo the, shirt and khaki jackets. And, you know, I mean, Borsalino, the hat business should be thanking Jews that that, that Orthodox Jews, the Haredim still wear these hats because they would be out of business otherwise. Right. So we're seeing just as modern spoken Hebrew of today doesn't sound like the way Jews spoke Hebrew in the Middle East, or certainly the way that Jews spoke Hebrew in Europe. They didn't speak Hebrew. Mm. In the early Opanim in Rosh Pina, anyone who went to the Opan in Rosh Pina 100 plus years ago, you knew that they went learned Hebrew in Rosh Pina because they all had the accent of the teacher. Mm. Today you have a Israeli accent. I can always right. tell native speaking Israelis from people who are not native speaking. There's no differences like you know and you got a toronto accent versus vancouver or winnipeg or you know southern <laughs> versus but but you're seeing the creation in the space of a hundred years 
of the recreation of a modern Jewish identity, which is authentically Israeli Middle East. I'm not saying it's the original way it was back thousands of years ago, but those right. differences. But a whether modern it's, Israeli identity, right? Yeah, not yeah. even just mo- not even Jewish, because Ju- Judaism is really kind of the the term that was used to go out into the diaspora, but re re understanding what does what do Israelis look like? What does it mean to be B'nai Israel? Exactly. And it's like an experiment that we're observing now. It's really interesting. People don't realize it because you have so many groups and, and you know, like the Haredi community is very exclusive. They don't uh, allow people into that community, like different Hasidic communities. They only want to marry, even if you're, and I know some Sephardim, even Moroccan, like, you know, Breslovers and things like that. It's interesting. I always thought that Hasidut was actually better suited for much of this Sephardi world. Mm-hmm. Uh, than in many ways, they take a lot of them take to it, but it's not traditionally their part of the world at all. Mm-hmm. But when they join this world, they generally have to marry within other Moroccan breast lovers. They're not welcomed into the mainstream community that goes back to breast breast love in Eastern Europe, you know, in Ukraine, and, and and so that world is much more exclusive. Whereas the Dati Lumi world and the secular Israeli world is much more inclusive, welcoming and diverse. And we're gonna see, we're watching it happen, the mixing up, which is healthy genetically, in my opinion, and much more interesting experiment. I'm a big believer we should get rid of those. We, we should take some good stuff from it. We can leave gefilte fish behind, in my opinion, um, but the, yeah, we Harry, should recreate Harry the identity. But the, but the good thing is, is had it been a normal balance, the Sephardi, had it been all the Ashkenazim had come back to Israel, that Sephardi influence would have been completely drowned out because they were outnumbered nine to one. And because they are till today, 50% of the population of Israel, um, and most of the things that we look at as being more authentically Israeli, even though they're not, is Middle Eastern, which is more, not necessarily Jewish culture, like falafel is not necessarily something originally, and shawarma are not Israeli, they're Middle Eastern food, mm-hmm. but they're more authentic to the Middle East. And they're definitely coming, they didn't come, Jews from Poland didn't bring falafel and shawarma with them. Um, even the folk dancing that the secular Zionists brought in is all from the right. Caucasus. It's not originally Jewish. I know you were into dancing. It's an interesting part. Yeah. There's nothing... There's nothing authentically Jewish about secular Israeli culture that was created by secular Zionism. You know, falafel's not, and folk dancing isn't. Right, <laughs> you know? right. It's sort of become that, you know. But what's also interesting, by the way, is, you know, the, talking about the Sephardic Jewish world, before you had the switch over a thousand years ago, and Ashkenazi goes from the medieval Europe to the Renaissance Enlightenment and demographically and culturally takes the lead, the Sephardi world played such a crucial role in not just the, being the center of the Jewish world. You know, you had yeshivas in Babylon, Surah and Pumbedisya for centuries that were the center of Jewish learning. Um, that will fade with the rise of Islam, but these yeshivas will be around from the creation of that early diaspora community with the destruction of Jerusalem. This will be the Babylonian Talmud. Um, and you see in places like Spain, you know, for instance, the trade I talked about, Jews will be such important middlemen, overwhelmingly they're gonna be right. Ashkenazi Jews. I mean, Sephardic Jews, excuse me, running on the Silk Road, which is gonna begin all the way in France, really. You know, because because of the, the, the Islamic world controls the Eastern Mediterranean. So this free trade to the Far East was not easy to do, but you had this road the Silk Road, and which was primarily traded things like silk, spices, perfume, things like that. There, read about the Radonite traders who from about the 6th to the 11th centuries mm. will be the central, these Jewish middlemen will go on these, Maimonides' brother David, who died on one of these trips, was one of these guys who went on these really long trips. It took years, by the way. And this is, we're talking about Marco Polo is for the 13th century, I believe. This is, this is, this is you know, 800 years before Marco Polo. Um, so the Jews will be the people who will, because once Jews, these Middle Eastern Jews, and by the way, many of them will go out there and settle out there, which is why you have like the Sassoon family in Mumbai. You have these Iraqi Jewish communities in India. I know several Jews whose families and going all the way out to the far East and even out to the Pacific. I know Jews who come from places like Singapore and Thailand. They will even go out and because these trips will take so long and many of them will just settle out there, um, there's going to be a Jewish community in, in Cochin, India, founded a thousand years ago, right. which no longer exists anymore and didn't have a, they basically married the indigenous Chinese population and all became, this could be the, how Jews got so obsessed with Asian cooking, could be these guys. I mean, <laughs> You know, and Jews are more obsessed with Asian food than Asians are obsessed with Asian food. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, I met the one in, in Givad Zevra used to live. We, we hired one of these women. They brought 
the last five Jewish women who are all ethnically Chinese and had to go through a, a conversion process because they no longer luckily Jewish. Um, but one of them we, we had, it, we used as a cleaner in our house and um, she was immediately grabbed within three months and thrown into a tour guides course because how many Mandarin speaking Jewish guidance are there now? There's quite a few Israelis who learn Mandarin, right. but I still see her today. I still see her and her two friends. They were roommates in this apartment. Used to clean houses. Now they're like the Chinese guides. Yeah. So you have, you know, the whole uh, navigation, the you know, the the whole creation of, of the of the Catalan Atlas, which was the, the maps used by all the great explorers, Magellan, Columbus, all the, you know, all of the navigational equipment used, Jacob's ladder, you know, the. the which was the, the sextant used to measure. That's how you measure your position out at sea, you know, like you must take a reading of, it, it's amazing how this Sephardic Jewish community, not only was gonna be in charge of trade and bringing all these valuable goods in from the Far East, but also the, you know, the knowledge that was lost to Europe during the dark ages, uh, the Arab world had in the Middle East, the classical knowledge, these, you know, Arab, Arabic speaking Jews will translate it into Hebrew or Latin, send it to Europe. It'll be translated, you know, or translated into Hebrew. Then Jew, Jewish scholars in Europe will translate it back into Latin or Greek, and that will be the bit, the seed of knowledge to be used to create a lot of the Renaissance, that kind of stuff. So it's such a great story, of of you know, wandering from place to place, but using our international connections to uh, pollinate the world uh, economically and ideologically. And, scientifically and mm. and there's a lot of interesting books written about it but that role will be played almost exclusively by the sephardic jewish world at the time which unfortunately along with the arab world that goes into regression a thousand years ago and becomes more backward and closed mind than it was before uh we get pulled along with it and that's that's right. that affect the jewish world until until today when so i have a question about you know you mentioned the babylonian um houses of study like it's hard to imagine what a yeshiva looked like if they weren't dressed like Eastern Europeans. So like, what would that, have, what would they have been wearing and what would that have looked like? I think it's important sometimes to have an image in our head of what that was, because so many people think yeshiva and they picture white shirt, black jacket, black hat, even when you see like things like shtisel in Israel. Right. But if right. you talk, if we're talking about the, ba the Babylonian Talmud, what did those guys look like? Well, first of all, that's a great question. Uh, um, number one is even the look of the yeshiva Haredi world today is very new. It's a look that is, it is definitely less than hundred years old. I can show, I have pictures of Hevron yeshiva before the riots, 1929. The guys are all clean shaven, wearing little like John Lennon glasses. One has like a straw hat, one has a cap. One has even my Rosh Hashiva, Benoach Weinberg, who passed away, you know, not so long ago, but he came to Israel in 1952, I believe. And he had like, you see, clean shaven, little round glasses, straw hat, Rabbi Berkowitz, or Risa, where he told me he had like, you know, like yellow shirt. This, this conformist uh, look is very much a modern thing. You look, you can see from Roman Vizniak, who went to Eastern Europe before the Holocaust and photographed, you can see, you definitely had Jews who wore that kind of the look, you know, but it was, no one had the money or the conformity and you right. didn't have yeshiva learning, by the way. You know, I always tell people that the Haredi world of today is the newest version of Judaism. The reform movement is older than the Haredi world of today. Mm -hmm. Reform in Germany. I'm not saying learning Torah and keeping that, don't get me wrong, I've misunderstood. But this giant community you have of everyone dressing in the black and white and looking that way is a very post-Holocaust uh, Jewish worldview. Um, but you can see we don't have pictures and photography going back a thousand years ago to Sur and Pumbedicia on the Euphrates River to see what they look like, but you can see images of Jews, whether it's drawn or photographed uh, in the early years of photography, Middle Eastern Jews living in Jerusalem, you can see it. And you can see they look very much like Jews. It's funny because today the Haredi world thinks it looks so different. The idea is you're supposed to look a little different from the non-Jewish world. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to, whether it's how you, you know, keeping the beard, not shaving the sides of your head. But much of the dress of, of the Hasidic world is adopted from Eastern European dress, right. even the dress of nobility with the fur hats and the long coats. And that was the normal kind of dress. But it, it, clearly from the images we have, it, they're wearing the dress of what the majority of the population wore. They may have worn had a, a look that was specifically Jewish. And Jews, by the way, it's interesting that we don't get this point. When you take 
if you can put the skin and hair, the skin, hair, and eye color aside, there is a Jewish look that transcends Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Granted, we come in all size, shapes, and colors, but when you put uh, a lot of Sephardic Jews next to Arabs, sometimes they can't tell them apart, by the way, especially the younger RC, the RC are kind of like the Jewish greasers. They have like the same haircut as the Arabs and the darker skin ones. It's a, sometimes it is hard to tell them apart. Mm -hmm. And by the way, a lot of the Palestinian Arab population has Jewish blood, but there's definitely a Jewish look. And I used to pray when I was in Kivad Zev, I lived for years, the only minyanim that I would go to because of time-wise were Sephardi minyanim. And I always looked at the people and these were mostly North Africans. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, you know, they, their skin is a little darker than mine and they maybe have black eyes and not brown eyes, but they really look Jewish. Right. They really do look Jewish, which brings us to a really interesting idea thought of the close on is that, you know, just as these differences are a combination, cultural differences or combination of Jews living separately, um, the genetic differences are when you isolate communities for thousands of years, especially Jews in Europe who are come from, I remember seeing a statistic that 40% of all Ashkenazi women, mitochondrially, mitochondria are the women, you know, genetically carry. 40% of all Ashkenazi women have the mitochondria from six females. Oh, I saw four recently. I saw, it really could be. So you yeah. see, there's a lot of inbreeding in those communities, um, which is again, not so healthy. But when they started doing 20 years ago, these genetic studies, uh, looking at the, looking at the, um, you know, because it's just genetic stuff became big. Now, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, all the stuff has come out now. You know, the genome. And they found something really, really fascinating. Uh, you know, I always talk about when human beings are obsessed with, you know, uh, identity politics today is obsessed with, you know, skin, hair, and eye color. When that is a few, you know, it's, it's, it's a thin little layer and that human beings all are 99.99% identical. And what we're looking at that separates us is such a teeny part of what we really are. Right. It was same with the Jewish communities because there's been sort of attempts to delegitimize Jews as being, especially, you know, as being really a, a religion and not a people. We're not a race insofar as anyone can join, but initially we are one giant extended family that all goes back to Abraham and Sarah. Right. So it's not a great, like the Japanese have like a racial definition of who's you know, Japanese. You can't join, you can get permanent resident status, but you cannot become Japanese right. unless you, the best you could do is marry a Japanese man or woman and have a kid who's half Japanese and get citizenship. But Judaism doesn't hold by that criteria. Um, but there was attempts to kind of delegitimize Jews and you could see where it was going. If we could show Jews are just a religion and really have no common genetic connection, then we can delegitimize their claim to the land of Israel because that's right. one of the big lies that's foisted by the other side yeah. is that the Palestinian, not to get into this topic in any detail now, are the indigenous population and Jews are just, you know, a bunch of a racial community. Uh, the Palestinian, the PLO charter says that there's no such thing. Jews are not a, a nation or a people. They're a religion. They come from Eastern Europe. We're Middle Eastern. We're the indigenous population. You're a residual. Totally ignoring them. Yeah, completely, like, completely. I just got a big argument online. Yeah, I post I, I debates all the time. But, you know, besides the fact that our history tells us such, and, and this is not really a non-debatable point, although certainly many, many people have joined the Jewish people and a lot of Jews have opted out. But the core of who we are, according to understanding of how we understand our tradition, our history, is that we all come from, and that's the genes, and that's the internal genetic stuff. And as a matter of fact, starting 20 years ago, when they started to look at the genome of Jews, they found precisely that point, that Jewish communities, that, you know, that Yosef Mizrahi, coming from North Africa, and Chaim Goldberg, who look as about as, you know, light-skinned, pasty-eyed, like, you know, me, I have two skin colors, white and burn, versus him who looks like a Moroccan Arab guy, okay. that when they, when they strip off the external genetically, they have far more in common and share a common genome on average with each other, even though, you know, you know, you know, you know, Yaakov Goldberg may look skin, hair, and eye color more like an Eastern European. Although if you look right. at Slavs, they really don't look like a lot like Jews. Jews look very different from Slavic people. And then Yosef Mizrahi has from the North African guy. And this holds true for all Jewish communities around the world with a few exceptions, Ethiopians being one. It's not because they're black, because there's a lot of Jews from North Africa that are very dark. It's because the origins of that community is probably not originally Jewish. Um, there's a few examples of lost Jewish communities, Cochin, India, that claim to be and want to come back and are, but they don't fit into the genome. But the vast majority of the Jewish world, Ashkenazi and Sephardi, are remarkably similar genetically. Mm. 
mm-hmm. in our genome, more related to each other than we are to the populations amongst whom we may have lived for a millennia or longer, and our haplotype, because that's what Ancestry.com does, is it places you and where you most genetically connected to Africa are going back to its origin, 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 it's Middle Eastern. Right. And even though I may have lost my melanin, which is why I told my kids to marry Sephardim so they now can gain it back. And it's worked really well. I have granddaughters who look Latino and tan beautifully and don't burn. But I am, you know, my Yemenite son-in-law and I are, you know, on, a, on the deepest level, not just historically and culturally and religiously, but even genetically, uh, we go back to our beginnings and we're really all part of that, that uh, giant Jewish people. So what those uh, Sephardic Jews did coming back to the Mizrahi Jews and remixing with them is really what the entire Jewish world is kind of doing today, all coming back to the land of Israel and, and mixing in. And we're creating a United Colors of Benetton, wonderful cultural genetic experience, and which is really interesting because right. we yeah, get all the- that on an emotional, psychological and spiritual level when we cross those boundaries, you know, that we perceive, even though they're most of the time not real, you know, what we think is so different is usually so much the same. Exactly. It's such a powerful statement, you know, a physical expression of what we should be doing more of on the inside. Um, so I think that's really powerful. And that's, that's really the positive lesson is, you know, when you're creating the state of Israel is to bring in all the really interesting cultural influences we bring from outside of the land of Israel. Thank God if all Jews lived in Poland, the food would suck in Israel today, but thank God we have that. <laughs> But also recognizing because our big Achilles heel is infighting and focusing what makes us different is recognizing that no matter we're all part of the same people and we're brothers and sisters and we got to we can agree to disagree, but we got to recognize we're all one family. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 